Hello everyone and welcome back or welcome for the first time to Womance Public Access Read Along. This is the Pride and Prejudice edition, the Pride and Prejudition. My name is Morgan. I'm your odd chapter reader. And Morgan is of course joined by me, Isabel, your even chapter reader. And we are so excited to kick off our Pride and Prejudice edition. For those of you who are joining us for the first time on this little side quest for our larger podcast, we recently, previously read Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. We did. And that got us thinking about hero archetypes. And so we thought, we've got to read the Darcy. We've got to read the Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen next. And so that's what we're doing, a chapter-by-chapter reading of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So her second novel, but I think by far the most popular. her most popular, mm-hmm. owing a lot to a BBC miniseries starring Colin Firth, and then later on, um, more resonant to me personally, a film adaptation starring... Uh, cousin Greg's lover, <laughs> and I, I think like Isabeau, when it, comparing Jane Eyre versus Pride and Prejudice, do you have one that you would consider your favorite? Well, we discovered so much in Jane Eyre that mm-hmm. I would have said prior to this experience that. Pride and Prejudice was the novel that I liked better, but now I literally have no idea because the reading experience of Jane Eyre was such an illuminating one to me, and I and I sense that I will feel that way about this text as well. Um, so it's really up in the air for me. Well, I'll ask you at the end of it. So, <laughs> do you uh, have I'll a revisit. favorite between the two? I would have said Jane Eyre going into this, but I I don't know. I would say Jane Eyre going into the whole project itself, not just going into this book post-reading it. But I think that's because I want people to think I'm edgy and cool and uh, is not actually a reflection of, like, I don't think I have a true preference. (laughs) (laughs) I think they But after reading Jane Eyre, it's hard to not, like, you know, going through that process, it's hard to not feel more endeared to that novel as we embark on this reading of Pride and Prejudice. Indeed. Um, A couple other things that are different. um, Way shorter chapters in Pride and Prejudice. um, But we're still going to go chapter by chapter. Mm -hmm. And then also that's probably because Pride and Prejudice was not published serially. It was published as a whole book. Um, A tome. Yeah. Some cool things about Pride and Prejudice. It came out – it was – uh, written many years before it was published, but it came out, uh, Sense and Sensibility was kind of a sleeper hit, and then Pride and Prejudice did, like, gangbusters, and Jane Austen became kind of a petite celebrity of the era, of the Regency era. True story. And I think that's also important Absolutely. to note. I think we think of Pride and Prejudice as kind of the framework for historical, but this was more mm-hmm. like a contemporary when it came out. It was like the uh, Danny Brown of its day. <laughs> But it was also really kind of cutting edge because it talked about quote unquote normal people or her novels in general. Um, and so she gets a lot of credit for kind of modernizing fiction, English fiction. 
Something that's kind of sad, uh, Jane Austen died not long after her books were published and she found mm-hmm. success. She was quite young. 41. Mm-hmm. But what a hugely impactful, if small, um, collection of texts she left behind for us to enjoy. Indeed. Drawing room novels that also don't have their heroines end up in tragic, awful situations, uh, being condemned to, condemned to death or taken in by the coppers at Stonehenge. Oh, yeah. Um, in an era which was all melodramas about princesses and everything, like this must have been like a cucumber water or a lemon water if you mm. don't like cucumber. <laughs> How refreshing it must have been. And like really, you know, I think it's – Said, like one publisher took a chance on sense and sensibility and thus the whole world of English literature was chained. That's mm-hmm. pretty wild to think about. Yeah, it is. Cause she because her style of writing was not in style. She what I her original drafts were like meant to be um very much Oh, what's that word? It's like what the daily show is. <laughs> what is that? Satire. Satire. Her novels started off like super satirical. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as she revised them as the years went by, they became much more like comedy of manners. And I, I like that. There's like, ne- there, I, my assumption going into reading this is that it's going to be way more subtle than Jane Eyre. I, it would be another key difference. Yes. And I also genuinely know that the prose will be like, Less rotund. Um. <laughs> less rotund, yeah, 100%. But no less delectable for its uh, sparing wit. We shall see. I, I think, like, you know, I think as much as we associate Jane Austen with historical romance, I think our contemporary romantic comedies are much more the direct inheritor of Pride and Prejudice rather than our historicals. Historicals kind of remind me a lot of Jane Eyre, which has all that, like, funk and id. Lots of id. Yeah, and I'm not expecting, but maybe I'll be, like, overwhelmed by the id. Maybe. I I don't think it's going to be, like, you know, there were times when we were reading Jane Eyre where you and I were both struggling to separate Jane Eyre from Charlotte. And I... Oh. Mm. Well, she would have those silly <laughs> Right, where it's like, well, this signs. doesn't feel like Jane anymore. This feels like an adult human being who really doesn't like her brother or, like, really has feelings yeah. about. Um, and I think that my guess is that there will be less of an authorial presence in this text. A lot more control. Mm. Yes. Do you think? It also might just be like the character of like having several drafts over like the course of a whole decade or more. It doesn't seem to me that Charlotte was doing a lot of draft interventions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or she just was like, this is, you know, like this is just it. Uh, Jane Eyre would be published about mm-hmm. 40 plus years after Pride and Prejudice. And so I think we can easily assume Charlotte Bronte probably read this book, which is like stayed in print. <laughs> and um, I think it's interesting how my – I don't think I'm going to see a lot of the fingers of this 
in Jane Eyre. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I'm going to see those shades. But I'm kind of hoping I do now. I'm, I'm just cards on the table. So if you hear me saying something that sounds like a reach, it probably is because I want that like really unlikely thing to be true. All right. So Pride and Prejudice is a basically a romantic comedy of errors and manners and class. And what else? What else should we say before we embark? I think one thing that is really important is that Mark Twain said this very, and I should actually look up the quote, um, thing that has stayed with me. And I think it's kind of tainted or funked up the the genre. The genre of romance? Yes. Okay. I'm curious what the quote is. I think people definitely think about this text as like the the canonical first. And I think that's fine. I think you and I have good reason to believe that that might not be true. Um, and so Mark Twain said this thing. I often want to criticize Jane Austen. But her books madden me so that I can't conceal my frenzy from the reader and therefore have to stop every time I begin. Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and beat her over the skull with her own shin bone. Because they're so boring. Does he say because they're so boring? Mm-hmm. That's the end of the quote? Mm-hmm. Oh. And so I think this idea that, like, Jane... Jane Austen is like women's fiction and that she's been perceived as women's fiction by like very well-respected men writers forever, like time immemorial. Like this chip on the shoulder is also as canonical as Pride and Pride. Yeah, and it's also like untrue. Like the regent himself had like a full set of all of her novels and all of his residences. And he had Emma dedicated to him. And I think of, like, Emma as especially, I think it's because it's, now here's, okay, here I am busting out my chip, but I'm like, why is Emma the one that's on all the reading lists? And I'm like, well, because it's longer. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) thinks long stuff is smarter, but they're wrong. Um, Yeah, so I think you're right. That's so true. I think having a chip on your shoulder about, romance i don't know if that many people know that quote by mark twain i don't think they do i think it's actually like not one of his more famous quotes uh <laughs> yeah, i mean it's hard that's a hard top 10 to break into for mark twain for sure sure but like i think the fact that like there's this zeitgeist of very respected men being like that's women's fiction seclusion yeah. move it away like it doesn't need to be with like capital l literary fiction that therefore we don't have to take it seriously or like the feelings of women or like drawing room conversations are not where real problems lie so like why would i serious writer satirist be bothered by this person like i'm not going to and neither should you if you're like an intellectual and i think like romance has been carrying that weight rightly or wrongly since the beginning and as you rightly point out like (laughs) 
the, these books were beloved in England. They were incredibly popular. They made her a commercial success. She did not die in punery yeah. or poverty, and neither did her family. Um, yeah. <laughs> Another kind of anecdotal thing that kind of speaks to this is when we did our first reading of Jane Eyre, we talked about the fact that the Bronte sisters published under pseudonyms, which were made to sound more masculine. But mm-hmm. as soon as those books were popular, everyone knew that the curer was actually Charlotte. It's not like she lived her life in obscurity after that. She totally. became very much part of the literati even. And um, yeah. yeah, and I would also say like there's nothing inherent in Mark Twain's quote that says this book about women's stuff is boring. <laughs> Yeah, if anything, I think it shows an intellectual shallowness on the part of Mark Twain. (laughs) Like, he's trying to show how smart and funny he is. I dig her up and bash her over the skull with her own shin bone. That says more about you than it does about Jane Austen's books. Sam Clemens. I would say saying that quote being revelatory about oneself. I was shocked when you said because it was so boring. Because I was like, oh, because he loved it so much and was so angry at her for being so good at writing. Which is how I would feel or how I sometimes feel when someone's really good at something I aspire to be really good at. I'm like, God, I just want to choke you to death and throw you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, just kidding. Everyone's safe around me. Um, But yeah, I I think it just – yeah, it sounds like he's trying to be a contrarian. Yeah. I think probably someone asked him a question he didn't feel like answering. It also like reeks of like bad day. Like it's not even his, it's not even a good quote. It's not even Mm -hmm. him being witty. It's just him being weird and violent. He could be really witty. Extremely so. So we know that uh, like a good day. So that's like why I'm like, I don't think, I don't think he thought through that. What if, and also like people talk about living your life in public and having like your worst parts of yourself aired out but poor mark twain was experiencing that way before like everyone made a thing out of everything he said it's true it's weird that we have this quote preserved for posterity because it's so like useless i think the only reason that we have this quote is because it pertains to jane austen and he's being mean about it right like because he's being a massive contrarian but like i think you know back to my point where it's like People associated Jane Austen with women's fiction. There was this entire movement of people who were like, she's not that good when the clear evidence of capitalism said otherwise. (laughs) Which is the evidence romance most uh, leans on most. It's the evidence that romance leans on most. And it's validation. 200 years later. (laughs) I also think him being like so violent and cruel speaks to the fact that Jane Austen at the time when Mark Twain was getting asked about Jane Austen had already reached almost like she was a figure more than a person, like an idea more than a being. Like you wouldn't say that about like a contemporary or like or even, no, of like, course not. And she'd already been dead for more than fifty years. So like, well, she had been dead, but also like I think it speaks to the fact that she's become like a totem, like. I, I think, like, if he thought of her as, like, a writer like me, but she mm-hmm. had ascended already mm-hmm. in that 50 years. That's just wild speculation on my part. About Samuel Clemens. Yeah. 
Welcome to our podcast within a podcast. Let's speculate about Samuel Clemens. <laughs> I think he right, was racist. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> with that with that taste in our mouth, let's uh, let's see if he was wrong. Let's see if he was right. Let's see if this is a boring book. Let's see if having a chip on your shoulder about Pride and Prejudice is earned as I read one of the most iconic sentences in all of literary history. (laughs) Uh, And let's see if it's overhyped. Might be overhyped. I don't know. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, chapter one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered as the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters. My dear Mr. Bennet, said his lady to him one day, have you heard that Netherfield Park is let at last? Mr. Bennet replied that he had not. But it is, returned she, for Mrs. Long has just been there, and she told me all about it. Mr. Bennet made no answer. Do you want to know who has taken it? cried his wife impatiently. You want to tell me, and I have no objection to hearing it. This was invitation enough. Why, my dear, you must know, Mrs. Long says that Netherfield is taken by a young man of large fortune from the north of England, that he came down on Monday in a chaise and four to see the place, and he was so much delighted with it that he agreed with Mr. Morse immediately that he is to take possession before Michaelmas, and some of his servants are to be in the house by the end of next week. What is his name? Bingley. Is he married or single? Oh, single, my dear, to be sure. A single man of large fortune. Four or five thousand a year. What a thing for our girls. How so? How can it affect them? My dear, Mr. Bennet, replied his wife, how can you be so tiresome? You know that I am thinking of his marrying one of them. Is that his design in settling here? Design? Nonsense! How can you talk so? But it is very likely that he may fall in love with one of them, and therefore you must visit him as soon as he comes. I see no occasion for that. You and the girls may go, or you may send them by themselves, which perhaps will still be still better. For, as you are handsome as any of them, Mr. Bingley might like you the best of the party. My dear, you flatter me. I certainly have had my share of beauty, but I do not pretend to be anything extraordinary now. When a woman has five grown-up daughters, she ought to give over thinking of her own beauty. In such cases, a woman has not often much beauty to think of. But, my dear, you must indeed go and see Mr. Bingley when he comes into the neighborhood. It is more than I engage for, I assure you. But consider your daughters. Only think what an establishment it would be for one of them. Sir William and Lady Lucas are determined to go, merely on that account. For in general, you know they visit no newcomers. Indeed, you must go, for it will be impossible for us to visit him if you do not. 
You are over-scrupulous, Shirley. I dare say Mr. Bingley will be very glad to see you, and I will send a few lines by you to assure him of my hearty consent to his marrying whichever he chooses of the girls, though I must throw in a good word for my little Lizzie. I desire you will do no such thing. Lizzie is not a bit better than the others, and I am sure she is not half so handsome as Jane, nor half so good-humored as Lydia, but you are always giving her the preference. Way to go, Mrs. Bennet. You tell him. They have none of them much to recommend them, replied he. They are all silly and ignorant like other girls, but Lizzie has something more of a quickness than her sister's. Sounds like a real Mark Twain. (laughs) Uh, Lizzie and Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett, how can you abuse your own children in such a way? You take delight in vexing me. You have no compassion on my poor nerves. You mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They are my old friends. I've heard you mention them with consideration these 20 years at least. Ah, you do not know what I suffer. That's true. But I hope you will get over it. And live to see many young men of 4,000 a year come into the neighborhood. It will be no use for us if 20 such should come since you will not visit them. Depend on it, my dear. When there are 20, I will visit them all. (laughs) He's such an ass. Mr. Bennet was so odd a mixture of quick parts, sarcastic humor, reserve, and caprice that the experience of three and twenty years had been insufficient to make his wife understand his character. Her mind was less difficult to develop. She was a woman of mean understanding, little information, and uncertain temper. When she was discontented, she fancied herself nervous. The business of her life was to get her daughters married. It's solace was visiting and news. Not very nice. Pride and Prejudice needed help from Mark Twain to disparage uh, women. Uh, It seems like it was doing a pretty good job all on its own. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, both through Mr. Bennett and through the authorial voice there at the end. I know, here you were saying you don't think Jane Austen is going to be talking directly to us, but here we are. It's a way less close third than I remember. Is that fair to say? It's not a cuddly third. Absolutely not, yeah. She was a woman of mean understanding, little information, and uncertain temper. Her solace was visiting and news. So mean. So mean. So like when I was reading it, I was like, justice for Mrs. Bennett, right? I was like, I'm not going to do like a – I'm going to try to not do a stupid voice. I'm going to try to not do – but such is the strength of this writing that it's almost impossible. Like this chapter – wants you to feel specifically and writes everything in that direction, which is great writing. It's brilliant. It just makes me feel bad as a woman in 2022 for Mrs. Bennett, who I'm not supposed to feel bad for. Yeah. And I think it also makes Mr. Bennett, who I am supposed to like and think is very funny, it just makes me think that he's an ass. Yeah. There's like no fairness here. It doesn't like oh, look at these two assholes, just different different hues of asshole. And instead it's like, he's like smart and funny and she's kind of dumb. Like it really yeah. wants you uh, to feel a certain way. The other thing that's so like was like overwhelming. I was like, I feel like if I don't read this in the voice that it clearly wants me to, 
it like it really does take the humor wind out of the sails and so I feel kind of bad for anyone who like missed out on <laughs> all of the like delightful jokes in there but they are a hundred percent at Mrs. Bennett's expense and I guess this reading chapter one our first outing I just wasn't ready to to do it I guess but I probably will in the future because it's like it's, it's impossible not to. It's impossible not to. It takes so much conscious effort. And I hate trying. <laughs> That's fair. And his asides are very funny. Like, if 20 such come into the neighborhood, I will visit them all. Yeah. Like, he is quite sardonic, but he's also literally trolling his wife. Yeah. And he's just doing it to irritate her and get her going. Get a rise out of her. So, like, why, though? Like, Why? Um, I think it's interesting that our first chapter is a conversation between two ancillary figures about Mm -hmm. none of the specific main characters until we get to Lizzie. Like, Mr. Darcy isn't here at all in this first chapter. Um, And Lizzie is just kind of vaguely gestured towards. And not vaguely gestured towards. Like, compared to Jane and Lydia, she gets more. But (laughs) we know that she's quick. We know that she's quick. Well, we also, it's like, you know, since we're hearing about it from her father, he's not going to give her too much credit, I guess, which is interesting to have like a semi like deprecated main character. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really, and I I also immediately, manners, right? She's trying, she's begging her husband and explaining to him why he has to go and meet Bingley first. Um, class, right? She's talking about how much money he makes per year. And, like, also this sense of place. They're not in London. I also love that they refer to him as, like, from the north, you know? Um, so it's it's really interesting. I think all of our – a lot of our themes are set out here mm-hmm. immediately. Yeah. And very funny. Beginning. I wish I had read it more fun. I don't know. Do I regret how I read it? I don't think you should. Also, you have many more chances. Yeah. Many. Yeah. Mrs. Bennett's going to keep on talking. She won't stop. Mm -hmm. Can't stop, won't stop. No, but she's got a lot of skin in the game, in the talking game, to be fair. She does. She's got five daughters. Whew. Yeah. And, like, that's the other thing where it's, like, Mr. Bennett is actually fine, and, like, then he's dead, and then the estate is entailed to his male heir. So it's, like... Once he's dead, he doesn't have to worry about it, and he has his income from his small estate. But, like, his daughters won't. His wife literally won't. And so, like, the fact that he gets to, like, die and leave them penniless, and he's just like, I don't care about your nerves. You know, this book points out that Mr. Bennett, it specifically points out that he's, you know, funny and, and smart. But I I think, like, what you're pointing out would have been, like, inherent knowledge to the readership of the time. Yes. And you would assume that he would be somewhat invested, if only for, like, because he loved his daughters. Um, But he can't even say, like, a full – he can't even, like, fully compliment his favorite one. I – yeah. And I think maybe the book in those subtle ways is being critical of him. As an ineffectual patriarch. I Potentially. I think we'll have to continue mining that vein. Because I do think that's an interesting way of interpreting. Like, the fact that he is lackadaisical 
that he isn't as invested as Mrs. Bennett is in the literal financial and material future of his children mm-hmm. does feel like a failure. It's a, it's a kind of selfishness. Uh, it is selfishness. Yeah. It is, and that's like Jane Austen always has like one of those like bad but charming dads. And I think persuasion is kind of the one where she's like the most critical of the father figure who like loses the property. But I'm also thinking about Mr. Woodhouse. Mm-hmm. He's Mr. Woodhouse is ridiculous. He's ridiculous, yeah. But well meaning. Whereas like Mrs. Bennett isn't given the same sort of charm sheen that Mr. Woodhouse is given in Emma. But Mr. Woodhouse is kind of doing, I know this isn't an Emma podcast, but like he is kind of doing the same thing as Mrs. Bennett. No, um, Mr. Bennett. Mm-hmm. He's like a, conglom- a conglomeration of the two. He's as like. He's ridiculous, his... but he's disinvested in his child's future insofar as it serves him. Mm-hmm. Although Emma's in a different place because. Yeah, she's way wealthier. Right. And so her f- Material future is more secure than any of the Bennett children. Yeah, that's true. Any other thoughts on chapter one? Opens with a joke. Open with a joke. Never say, hi, how are you doing? Never do that. Just open with the joke. Open with a joke. Heavy dialogue. Heavy dialogue. Already a lot cleaner than Jane Eyre and a lot shorter. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, loosen your prides. And your prejudices. Never loosen your prejudices. Wait. (laughs) Okay, Mark Twain. Hold on. (laughs) Loosen your prejudices, but never your prides. Sometimes your pride. I'm... mm, Loosen your prejudices. Always. And your pride, never. Sometimes. We're going to, like, that is literally the theme of the book, that you have to loosen both your pride and your prejudice. Like, that's... I don't know. Literally the theme. I don't know. I don't think I know so. That you th- I know that you think pride is a virtue, but this book does not think that pride, to its extent, is a virtue. To its extent? She doesn't to even go that far. Extent. She hasn't gone it yet, but she will. She doesn't even go that far. Well. You'll see. You'll see. Loosen your prejudices. Loosen your prejudices for sure. Investigate them. Dismantle them. For sure. And just hold on to your prides. Or, like, think about it. (laughs) Reflect on your prides. How about that? (laughs) Loosen your prejudices. Reflect on your prides. It's like, maybe you shouldn't be proud of that. You are free to disagree with me. And I do. And I do. Excellent. Loosen your prejudices, but never your prides. End of episode. Sometimes your prides. (laughs) 